Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. What would happen if God gave you honor, riches, and wealth such that nothing you desired was beyond your reach? What if he then invited foreigners to enjoy this wealth in your place? What does this mean? Is the foreigner wrong to partake of your wealth? Is he now better off than you? Would you be right to condemn him? How can anyone reconcile God's generosity with such terrible affliction? For that matter, how can anyone reconcile bounty with famine, honor with obscurity, or purpose with futility? Richard and I explore these questions as we discuss Ecclesiastes chapter 6. This week's episode is produced in solidarity with the people of Greece. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 76 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Before we begin, I just want to take a moment to say that we are dedicating this episode to the people of Greece. We are very concerned about what they are going through today. Whatever the politics are, I can't imagine a reality in which it's okay or morally justified to consign any civilization, any nation, any community to depression. It's our hope and prayer that the people of Greece will find their way through this and that their suffering will be abated as much as possible. This chapter that we're looking at in Ecclesiastes today, I think, brings into question the point of being poor, the point of having plenty when it all disappears in the end. Before the episode, you and I were talking, Father, boy, this is getting kind of repetitious. This is starting to sound like we're saying the same thing over and over again. The fact that the author of Ecclesiastes keeps bringing up the same ideas and the same themes over and over again, it's for the reader to continue to deal with and to continue to wrestle with. So the ideas that the author has It's like he's running an experiment where he gets a certain presupposition and then pushes it to its logical extreme. And then he gets another idea, pushes it to its logical extreme, and keeps doing this time and time again, chapter after chapter. So I don't think this is repetitious. I think that it causes us to go deeper and deeper into these ideas. Well, and one would wish that the leaders and the rulers and those who control the banking industry in Western Europe, one would wish that they had read this text more closely because so much of the tone of the discussion is about Greek hubris and about the righteousness of austerity and how convinced people with money are that people who may have mismanaged their money or who may have had some missteps or who may have stumbled into poverty for all sorts of different reasons, how wrong they must be. I mean, the fact that people, once again, are so self-righteous and so assured of their own rightness is born out of this false desire of the human being 
to resolve unresolvable tensions. Whatever the Greeks may have done wrong as a society, the fact is the people living in Greece had much less control over their faith than we would like to comfort ourselves that they did. But if you accept that fact that you don't have as much control over your fate as you imagine, maybe you have no control, that's a very scary proposition for Western Europe because that means that eventually the same thing could happen to them. So it's easier to comfort yourself and to attack your neighbor and reassure yourself that you're right and so therefore things will be fine for you than it is to face the abyss of uncertainty but that abyss of uncertainty, which is the abyss that Ecclesiastes is pushing us toward, is the fountain of wisdom because it breeds humility instead of self-righteousness. Right. And that humility in facing one's death and the end of everything, you know, a lot of the discussion about economics is about how do you build up wealth? Whereas Ecclesiastes says whatever you build up, it's going to go on to the next generation. and Who knows how they're going to use that? How do we know that in 100 years, all the wealth that's been built up in the EU isn't going to disappear in a war or disappear in a stock market crash or spent just on stupid things. For those of you who don't know, Richard actually was in Greece for two weeks, just these past two weeks, which is why the last two episodes were recorded at the same time under pressure and duress. So it's nice to have some time to talk today. But, you know, you talked about the spirit and the attitude of the people in Thessaloniki versus Athens. Can you say something about that and how it relates to this text? Yeah, so when I was in Athens, the atmosphere seemed heavy. There were protests, and just in general, the demeanor of people was just heavy. And I went to Thessaloniki, and people were much friendlier. There are more people out. More people seem to be enjoying themselves. And I noticed this right off the bat, just leaving the airport, just leaving the train station in Thessaloniki. I was in a cab, and I asked the cab driver, I said, What's the difference? Why in Athens are things so heavy, whereas here in Thessaloniki, people seem lighter and seem like they're enjoying themselves? And he says, look, here we're closer to Mount Athos, and we believe in God, and that gives us hope. He said, in Athens, it's all about politics. It's all about money. My cab driver said, I don't watch the news on TV. I don't listen to the news. It's just people arguing with each other. If I want to know what's going on, I talk to people, and that's how I do things. So in Thessaloniki, there was this feeling of just like today, we believe in God, we don't know what's coming, we're going to enjoy our friends, we're going to talk to people, and really that's all we have control over. And I think that that's an important thing in light of the text we're reading in Ecclesiastes. And may I remind everyone that the church in Thessaloniki was established by the hand of the Apostle Paul. We actually got to visit the Latavan Monastery where, according to tradition, Paul gave his second address. There's something of the preacher's wisdom in that cab driver's attitude. Look, whatever is going to happen is going to happen. The point is, everything is in the palm of God's hand, and we have the faith that we're handed, and we live from day to day. And even in his comment about how he talks to other people instead of watching an electronic box to find out what's going on, He's finding everything in his neighbor. It's a very lovely story. Yeah. Anyways, there is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and severe affliction. I almost want to send this to the Chancellor of Germany. It's a little frustrating that the Greeks got to eat on your back. Someone gets all this stuff and they get everything they would ever need, everything of their heart's desire, 
And then someone comes in and takes it and just eats it for them. Why do the Greeks get a live off of our prosperity? They just sit, they don't work, and they eat and they drink and they enjoy themselves on the beach, whereas we here have cloudy, miserable winters and we have to work all the time. And they themselves in Germany understand this is evil. This is vanity. This is evil, which is prevalent among humans. Why do people work so hard to get all this stuff and then foreigners come and then get to enjoy it? I mean, all the civilization that was built up in Asia Minor, the Greeks would remind us the Turks came in and got to enjoy. Everyone wants to complain. Wait a second. This is my stuff. Right. How come they get to enjoy it? Every single discussion about immigration, this is exactly the point, and it's, according to the author here, vanity. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better the miscarriage than he. For it comes in futility and goes into obscurity, and its name is covered in obscurity. Here, he has all the children, all the kids around him, he lives so many years, but... He doesn't have enough things and he can't even be buried. He's poor. He's destitute. He's got nothing. It's better if he was just never born. Yeah, he's born. He's got all these good things, but he can't even enjoy his life. So better he would die before he was even born. And that way he wouldn't have to worry about it because it all comes in futility. It comes with no point. And he goes into obscurity. Everybody forgets it. So the little good that he had is just going to be gone anyway. So if he comes in, has all this stuff that he can't enjoy, why does he just not be born? That would be better than having to live through that futility. It is such a difficult text to hear. It is so painful. It is pushing you to the limits of the contradiction that is inherent to the human condition. Why should I do a good work when it doesn't matter anyways? It doesn't pay off. It can't pay off. But you should do a good work. Because you're here and there's a need. But why? I mean, there's this tension of why that's, that's just not, it can't be reconciled. I think what happens is that people want religion, they want wisdom to reconcile the contradictions in their life. But real wisdom does not reconcile contradictions. It exposes them and pushes them. And I think the sharper the contradictions become inside your mind... And the more you struggle with those contradictions, the more fruit it bears for wisdom. This is the problem with ideology. It reduces everything to a binary zero or a binary one. In other words, what fundamentalism or political ideology does is instead of knowledge being wrapped around an arch, it tries to wrap it over a pyramid. An arch holds both ends together, right? And it bends. It's somehow trying to reconcile both endpoints. But with ideology and fundamentalism, it's more like a triangle and you come up to the tip and you have to fall on one or the other side. But once you fall on one or the other side, you are doomed to self-righteousness. Because the lie of binary wisdom is that it allows you to put someone else in a different camp. And I'll give you an example. Every time I preach and I say something controversial, People who have been trained in theology try to pin me down and say, oh, you're like this theologian, or oh, you're like this philosopher, or oh, you're saying what this person said. Because by categorizing you, they can escape the tension that is inherent in what you're preaching. Because they can say, oh, he's in this camp. 
oh, well, now that I know what he is, I can sit back on my side of the triangle and feel fine. Ecclesiastes is not allowing you to sharpen the edge of that arc between contradictions. It makes it really uncomfortable. I mean, this verse, it reminds me of, you know, when people see a poor person on the side of the road, obviously drunk or something, it's like, I'm not going to give them my hard-earned money. And here it wouldn't even say hard-earned money. It would say God-given money. Why would I give my God-given money to somebody else? It's here for me to enjoy. And this is what it's trying to undermine. Because on the one hand, it says, well, yeah, it was given to you to enjoy. If it was given to you to enjoy and you don't enjoy it, then it's vanity. Why bother giving it to you? It, he says, and, and I believe the it here refers to obscurity, it never sees the sun and it never knows anything. It is better off than he. What a statement that obscurity is in better shape than you are at the end of the day. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice, that's kind of a Middle Eastern way of talking, happy birthday, congratulations, no, a thousand congratulations. No, a million congratulations. That's, you know, how the Arabic language <laughs> And it's works. not even enough. A thousand years twice. Exactly. A thousand years twice. And does not enjoy good things. Do not all go to one place. That's the Boot Hill phrase. That always reminds me of that famous scene in The Magnificent Seven, where Steve McQueen and Yul Brenner decide to escort somebody to Boot Hill. And everyone's upset because he's not white. And the attitude is, you know, well, I mean, I never knew Boot Hill was exclusive. I mean, what's the big deal? Anyways. Here, again, it's if you're going to get stuff, you should be able to enjoy it. But right. look, time and time again, we have people who don't enjoy it. Why do I have to pay my taxes so that some low life can have an easy life? I got my money. I mean, it's who's, mine. Who's wiser, the Germans or the Greeks? All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. So the Germans are working hard and saving. To what end? For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? Who says the German is right and the Greek is wrong? And who said that the Greek got the better under the deal? The whole discussion is framed incorrectly. To me, that's why for the scriptural person, the question isn't who's right and who's wrong. It's what is our duty towards those who are suffering, irrespective of their mistakes or shortcomings? How can you consign an entire nation to depression on the basis of the belief that you're right? I mean, Americans don't think about it. The Greek government spends $44,000 per person in debt. That's the, how the national debt in Greek is measured against a population of 11 million something. In the U.S., we have $45,000 per person in debt. What's the difference between a Greek and an American? Are we better than them? Are we smarter than them? I think that that's a really arrogant but widely held assumption that is fueling the abuse of an entire nation. And to me, the situation in Greece is symbolic because here we see openly and actively the wealthy nations propping themselves up on the back of somebody else. Greek suffering is a worthy sacrifice to maintain Europe's lifestyle. That's the basic point they're making. Here... God may give you all this good stuff, but either way, you're going to die, either with enough or without enough. And so the distinction between the person who has enough and who does not have enough, it's really irrelevant. Correct. And that's the beautiful thing of this book that is repetitious, is that all the differences we as human beings paint, death erases them. Because like you said, Boot Hill is not exclusive. And so a man's labor is for his mouth. The appetite is not satisfied. Whatever hard work we do, we're always going to be hungry for more. And whatever advantages a wise man has over the fool, 
What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? Well, here it is. What the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility and a striving after wind. The eyes see... What's right in front of you. ...is better because what the soul desires is always unlimited, it's infinite, and it's unattainable. You're desiring eternity. And here, this concept calls to mind Genesis for me. Your heart is set on eternity, as the preacher said in an earlier chapter. But eternity is not your domain. So you lust after divinity. But lusting after divinity is folly. It's what God has set right in front of your eyes that counts. As my father used to always say, Mark, open your eyes. What's right in front of you? Very important advice. Open your eyes and look. What is right in front of your face that's the question at hand. Mm -hmm. Then the futility, which I've been rephrasing in my own mind as pointlessness. So this too is pointless. What the eye see is better than what the soul desires. But the thing is, every single human being, they forget. There's a reason why your dad had to keep reminding you that. Right. Because it's too easy to forget. Our desires trump what our eyes see. Absolutely. And what we imagine trumps what's actually happening. Whatever exists has already been named and it is known what man is. For he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. And this calls to mind a very famous Chinese proverb. If you kick the world, the world will kick you back. You know, what are you arguing with? How can the Greeks argue with the Germans? The Germans have the upper hand. What exists, exists. What human beings are is what human beings are. You can't argue with the one who's stronger than you. Okay, so there's someone who's richer than you. Okay, what are you going to do? And in this way, this is the amazing thing, is that it undermines both the rich and the poor. Because here it's undermining the poor. You can't argue with one who's stronger than you. Oh, sure, your desire is much stronger than what you actually have. But that's how it goes. This is futility. You cannot argue with those who have authority over you. You cannot argue with fate. This is, it's not about authority, ultimately. It's about the authority of fate. Again, I call to mind the conversation between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. It's plain as day. And I want all of our American friends to listen carefully. That abusive father that you all daydream about, Pontius Pilate is it. And Jesus bowed down to him. There's something going on here because the strength comes from submission. Gandhi proved it. MLK proved it. And we still fight it as Americans. Now, plenty of people before them demonstrated it, but I'm calling out symbols that resonate with Americans. You idolize people who did the very thing you reject. Why are you fighting what God has established right before your eyes? And I think bringing up the example of Jesus versus Pontius Pilate is very good because of the poor versus the weak. Jesus did not desire in his heart the power that Pontius Pilate had, which he could have. He said, I could bring down angels and I, you know, he could possess his power. But instead, he accepted, okay, you've got power. I don't. And what happened to both Jesus and to Pontius Pilate? They both died. They both went to the same place. They both went to the same place and to the same grave. And God grabbed Jesus by the back of the neck and stood him up. But no one saw it except the select few who wrote about it. Because the fact that you can't see the resurrection pushes the same question that Ecclesiastes is pushing. Because if you can see the resurrection, you can resolve those tensions. You can reconcile those contradictions. And then you can find yourself on the right side of history, as people are wont to say. 
But in Scripture, no one is on the right side of history. In Scripture, everyone is forced to look upon the one whom they have pierced. If you go beyond that, then the Germans are right. Let's smash the Greeks because we're right and they're wrong. Triumphalism is the deepest sin of human arrogance. For there are many words which increase utility. What then is the advantage to a man? There's a lot of ways of explaining things and talking about things and discussing and theologizing about them. But what's the advantage? For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime? During the few years of his feudal life, he will spend them like a shadow for who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun. So look, in the end, the difference between the rich and the poor, the powerful and the weak, the one whom God gave everything, the one whom God gave some things but he wasn't able to enjoy them, the rich person who wasn't able to enjoy his riches, in the end, he only has a few years anyway. He's going to spend them like a shadow and he will die. Just like Pontius Pilate who had all the power and strength that he could desire, he still ended in death and he is only a shadow. Here at the end of chapter 6, I think you have at the same time, without resolving the tension in the text, you have this reminder of the epilogue of this change in voice at the end of the book in chapter 12. You have a hint of that because all throughout the text, you're exploring futility, yet God is acting. God is the one who's giving and taking away. You don't know why he's doing it. And from your perspective as the preacher, it seems like futility and vanity and is infuriating and leads you to even suggest that maybe life is futile itself and I shouldn't have been born. But at the same time, he poses the question, and I think it's an important question, who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Man is lusting for that eternal perspective, but he can't grasp it. But yet the one who is acting in the text, the only actor, that's the funny thing, the only actor in Ecclesiastes is God. The one who is acting is the one who can tell what comes after man. So, again, that's not a cheap resolution of the tension, because I don't think that's what the text is doing. But I think it's part of this tension. How, on the one hand, can the preacher talk about God and about wisdom and about God having this post-apocalyptic perspective? That's our terminology, not the text terminology. And at the same time, struggle with the absolute futility of everything. This is what if I may, this is what true religion is. True religion is not answers. True religion is wisdom stemming from questions. And the answers that scripture give are not philosophical answers. They are fatherly and motherly answers. Do this and it shall be well with you. Thanks very much, All Richard, right. for a great session today. Thank you very much. Welcome Father. back from Greece. It's good to be back. As your mother said, you timed the trip perfectly. <laughs> You got out of Greece just before they shut down the cash machines. Exactly. Perfectly. Take care. Thank you. Se gnoriz apotin kopsi tu spathiu ti dromeri Se gnoriz apotin opsi pume vya me trai ti gi Havta kokala Don't
ελεύθερια και σαν πρώτα ανδριωμένη χέρε χέρε ελεύθερια The Bible as Literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.